Welcome back to another edition of the Disney Dish Podcast with Jim Hill. It's me, Len Testa, and this is our show for the week of Schmerz Day, November 29th, 2021. On the show today, news, listener questions, and in our main segment, Jim Hill gives us the history of Animal Kingdom's beloved Jingle Jungle Parade. Let's get started by bringing in the man who says that because it contains a guy sneaking around a tower at night to avoid Alan Rickman, Die Hard is a Harry Potter prequel, not a Christmas movie. It's Mr. Jim Hill. Jim, how's it going? Oh, I'm so glad you mentioned Alan Rickman. Have you ever heard the story about how he was going to walk away from playing Snape in the Harry Potter movies? They had made the two of them so far, and they had just replaced, well, they had lost Richard Harris, and Michael Gambon had come in the door to play the second Dumbledore. And Rickman was like, you know, the thing with Snape is he's, he's basically a guy who costume never changes. Where's the challenge of this? And so he goes to clue J.K. Rowling in about this. And she's like, wait, 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 wait. Let me tell you where Snape is headed. And, <laughs> and he was the only one who knew. Only three of oh. the books had come out at that point. She addressed him with this huge secret about this character. And it's like, holy cow. So, yes, I I'm will. In, I'm in. I'm in. Yeah, I'll, I'll say for all eight movies. And he did. Oh, what a great story. Yeah. All right, folks, let's do a quick shout out to subscribers over at DisneyDish.Bandcamp.com. Thanks to new subscribers, Mike MJ Lopez, Mary Has the Spirit, and June Taylor, and the longtime subscribers, Josh Mullins, Chris Lissenfeld, and Jay Broadley. Jim, although these folks only work part-time outside Epcot's newest restaurant, Space 220, they've already amassed enough experience in orbit to break the world record for cumulative spacewalking time previously held by Anatoly Solovev, of the Russian Federation. True story. Are these the ones who work the squeegee on the outside of the window? Exactly. exactly. Uh, You'd be surprised how much, how much space time maintenance gets. <laughs> there we go. All right. On to the news, folks. The Disney Dish News is brought to you by Storybook Destinations, trusted travel partner of the Disney Dish podcast. For a worry-free travel experience every time, book online at storybookdestinations.com. All right, Jim, we mentioned last week that you and I are doing our first ever Disney Dish cruise in 2022, we're calling it the Disney Dish on the Disney Wish. At that time, I did not realize, Jim, how popular it would be. Mm -hmm. We have something like four spaces remaining Oof. on this cruise. It's September 23rd to the 26th of 2022. It's a Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Monday out of Port Canaveral. Three nights, so it's as affordable as possible. If you guys are interested in booking on this, I would suggest booking sooner rather than later. And storybookdestinations.com slash Disney Dish. True story, Jim, I am getting a red tuxedo jacket made like Isaac Washington from the love boat. Oh, I'm not sure I can, I can actually wear that around the ship though. <laughs> well, it, either that or really it's time to study up on your mojito skills. Exactly. And I've been, like I said, I've been, I've been watching uh, Laurel and I've been watching the love boat from season one mm -hmm. just to, uh, just to, to make sure that we understand the, uh, the ethos of the entire show. By the way, um, a fun party game here mm -hmm. is as the initial credits are rolling, right? Mm -hmm. This is a good drinking game. Pick a show from the 70s, mm -hmm. like Happy Days. And then if a star from that show is on the love boat, you drink. Oof. Okay. <laughs> Laurel, and I were, Laurel and I were playing this yesterday and she had picked Happy Days. Mm -hmm. And everything was going well until Pat Morita showed up in the credits. <laughs> And you wave fondly goodbye to your liver. <laughs> Good night, baby. Good night. There we go. <laughs> All right, Jim. In other news, uh, Walt Disney World pauses sales of annual passes and some single-day tickets last week. So uh, last week was Thanksgiving week. Disney had run out of park reservations for the entire week. 
So they paused single date tickets. But Jim, mm-hmm. the pausing of annual passes. So right now, uh, as as we're, as we're recording this on Thursday, the only pass that's available is the Pixie Dust Pass, which is the most restrictive and has the most blackout dates. The ones that are not available are the Pirate, Sorcerer, and Increda Pass. And that inspired this question from listener Janet Sala, mm-hmm. who says, uh, I'd love to hear any rationale behind this. Are they going to raise prices? Is the non-Florida resident AP going away permanently? Does this mean I should sell my DVC points and buy a condo somewhere in the Sunshine State? Or should I take my mouse ears and just walk away? P.S. While I'm not a rocket scientist, I did intern at NASA's Marshall Space Flight Center for two years during college. So thank you for that, Janet. All right, Jim, why are they pausing annual pass sales? The explanations are all over the map. I mean, that there's... <laughs> it's like that when you're lying, Jim. <laughs> go ahead. What are, the, what are the explanations? I know what it is, but go ahead. The usual ones, particularly post-pandemic, that they don't have sufficient staff So it's difficult to run the parks and have the usual surge of annual pass holders headed into the holiday season. And that's also coupled with the fact that they do see a surge of of annual pass sales and people coming into the parks around the holidays because people like to give them as gifts. So it's all sorts of variations on staffing and that sort of thing. But didn't they already do this at Disneyland? And and Disneyland's the far smaller resort with only the two, yeah, they've three? Yeah, they've already stopped uh, sales at uh, Disneyland, yeah. Yeah. The, uh, the explanation that Disney gave for stopping sales at Disneyland is mm-hmm. to uh, was to ensure a great guest experience for everyone, mm-hmm. which is like saying, look, uh, we know the Titanic is sinking, but we're going <laughs> to limit seats on the lifeboat for it so that the people already on the lifeboat have a better experience. It's the picturesque North Atlantic in the middle of the night. I mean, <laughs> exactly. So. Look, you guys, is there anything more romantic than a, uh, a, a stars at night? Oh, Jim? There no, go. there is not. And okay. you will have plenty of time to glimpse those. Yeah. The thing I think it is, is mm-hmm. the parks have limited capacity and the resorts have limited capacity because of staffing issues. Mm-hmm. And Disney's looking at this and saying, we've got, you know, three buckets of people mm-hmm. that we could let into the park. The uh, annual pass holders, the people who are buying single day dated tickets, and then people who are staying at the resorts. And they know that the people staying at the resorts are the most profitable. So they're shifting how they allocate space in the parks to favor the people who pay more. It's as simple as that. That has been a refrain, especially as, you know, post-pandemic. But it's just, it's a little nakedly, we want the people who spend money. Yeah. I wish Disney wasn't underlining circle and indenting that because it, it just, I think it sends the wrong message. And this leads me to a second question, and that would be, that's this. Hmm. How much would an annual pass need to cost so that the amount of money Disney's making from an annual pass holder is the same as the amount of money Disney's making from an out-of-town guest who comes, you know, once once a year? Ooh. Would it be $2,000, $3,000? Keep going. <laughs> Yeah, like what, what would it, what would the number be? Well, I mean, realistically, if you think about the once in a lifetime guest who doesn't balk at anything, sure, I'll pay for a quick service meal in the park as opposed to say even stopping at the McDonald's next to All Star. They're looking for that level of spend on food on merch. And the whole point of an annual pass was kind of the same thing with DVC, you know, mm-hmm. save on your future visits to the park. And that's just not something Disney is encouraging right now. They want the big dumb tourist. You know, it's like, well, of course, I need churros for everybody. I wonder if, though, this is a little too coarse a policy for Disney, because there are some annual pass holders mm-hmm. who live out of state and who, who would come 
right? But they, you know, they stay offsite for a variety of reasons, but mm -hmm. would still come and spend tons of money in restaurants. And this is where I think Disney could be even more fine grained and say, track the spending of annual pass holders to say, okay, you know, you've spent X dollars this year in the park, you get three extra entitlements, you know, to come in or whatever mm -hmm. and do it that way. Because there, there's got to be some annual pass holders who simply letting them in the park to get reservations would be more profitable than some people who are coming in from out of town and staying at Pop Century or all-star movies or whatever. And Disney, Disney's the kind of company that would, would target that. They could make it fi that fine-grained. I think that's probably the next step. I technically agree that you know that's a you know a wonderful idea that that if Disney couldn't, oh, it's a horrible idea to just to let people into the theme park by spending. Oh, it's terrible. Well, no, no, but, no. I mean, but, I, I, but they could do it right <laughs> from Disney's corporate side. You know, yeah, if, if, oh yeah, if I'm putting yeah, 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 if I'm putting on my tie and my jacket and you know and I've got my quarter off, it's a wonderful idea. But I think as we all just learned from Defunct Land's wonderful documentary about FastPass. Disney is actually so bad at tech, the notion of you having to write this piece of code that would then chase down this particular piece of information is beyond them. The very fact that this could, in fact, be a revenue stream, but it's like, well, you know, we'd have to have bright people who could write that code or, oh, God, no, let's not do that. Yeah. Yeah. That's what, that's what it'd be, too. Yeah. We're not going to we're not going to pay somebody to write the code. That's yeah. OK. Fair enough. So. All right, Jim, another news, uh, some openings and reopenings uh, were announced at D23 over the weekend. We've learned that Guardians of the Galaxy will open in summer of 2022. So that's what, between June and September? Mm -hmm. uh, we didn't hear anything about Tron, but I still think Tron opens in 2022. What about you? Hey. You think 2023? From what I've been hearing, it it kind of depends on the summer of 2022. If it goes into 2023, will it have taken longer to build Tron than it, than it took to build the Magic Kingdom? Well, I think somebody was making a joke the other day that if you think how long the Disneyland Railroad has been shut down for the making of Tron, it's like it, it actually took a short amount of time to build a transcontinental railroad. <laughs> really? Okay. All right. Fair enough. <laughs> We also heard a couple of uh, reopenings. So Fantasmic is returning in 2022 with the new show scene. There we go. Yep. Mm -hmm. uh, what's the new show scene? Uh, we have a Moana show scene. We have an Aladdin show scene. And if I were betting good money, I'd say it would Coco. But my Coco, understanding yeah. is we are losing the Pocahontas scene to make room yeah. for this. Okay. Fair enough. Mm -hmm. Festival of Fantasy Parade returning the Magic Kingdom in 2022. But the Cavalcades will also remain. I'm a little surprised by this one, Jim. I strongly prefer the cavalcades. Yeah, but that three o'clock parade really does drive people into the park. It it holds them there in it it, in, in, in a way that the cavalcades just do not. I mean, don't get me wrong. The cavalcades are definitely a guest pleaser, but they don't drive quick service food sales or merch sales the way right. a three o'clock parade does. And then Finding Nemo, The Big Blue and Beyond will debut at the Animal Kingdom in 2022. So this is the reboot of Finding Nemo, right? Yep, yep. And folding in chunks of Finding Dory. Finding Dory, yeah. Can we talk about what wasn't announced? Like the replacement of Primeval World? Uh, you know, uh, I'm surprised at that. I thought it would be you. Yeah, in fact, somebody got a hold of the schedule of announcements. And it, what was interesting is there was clearly a paragraph break that, that you realize they removed a bullet point. And it was like, oh, I, I wonder what the bullet point was that got dropped out. I saw that, which shows you how fluid these things are, that they can literally be changed at the last minute. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. 
All right, Jim, we also got a bunch of surveys sent in by our listeners this week. We'll start with Valerie, okay. who writes in uh, with an annual passholder survey that she received. In the, uh, so this was a fairly extensive survey with tons of questions. The first mm. one that was sent in was the one on household income before taxes in U.S. dollars. And I think we've talked about this before, Jim, but let me just go over this, mm -hmm. uh, the specifics of this. So the, um, the categories start at under $40,000 a year in household income and go up to half a million dollars or more. But the interesting thing about it is of the 14 selections, mm -hmm. two of them represent the bottom half of American households. So two out of 14, mm -hmm. and that's uh, up to uh, $60,000, which is the 45th percentile of household incomes. There are two categories for the bottom half of uh, household incomes for all Americans. Mm -hmm. There are four categories where Disney's trying to differentiate the top 4% of American households by income. So there's 200,000 to 299,000, which is the 96th percentile, 300K to 400K, which is the 98th percentile, 400 to 500K, which is also the 98th percentile, and then 500K or more, which is again, also the 98th percentile. So if there's any question about the audience that Disney is looking for, oh, yeah. this survey tells you what it is. Are you a finback whale, a blue whale, a, a, you know, a sperm whale? Just trying to decide which variety of whale I'm chasing here. Yeah, half of the half of the category, so full seven out of the 14, mm -hmm. are trying to differentiate among the top 20% of American households by income. That's crazy. So although it's a survey about annual passes, the screens that Valerie sent along also included a number of questions around what streaming services you have and how much time you spend on them. Jim, is this is this typical for a annual pass survey? Uh, I, I, I think <laughs> while, it, you, while you're here. <laughs> yes. You know, I, I don't know if you heard the, the most recent, well, of course you heard the most recent quarterly earnings call and how yeah. JPEG had to announce that Disney Plus subscription has slowed. And yeah. this is a concern. Disney Plus was the lifeboat during the pandemic and, you know, helped keep the stock afloat and all that. And so the fact that if you're a Disney annual pass holder, you are a among one of the company's more loyal customers. So it's like, okay, so how many of those folks are also Disney Plus subscribers? And yeah. is there further turf we could mine there? The thing with the streaming service is the amount of money that they need to spend on content every Oof. year just to keep up with Netflix yeah. is astounding. I think Netflix is spending, what, $10 billion a year? Easily, easily. And I think Disney's spending like billion plus. Mm -hmm. I mean, the, the numbers are just so skewed in Netflix's favor. And that's a that's a huge ramp up for Disney. First of all, I mean you have to find ten billion dollars worth of scripts to approve, right? Mm. Which let's let's face it, there's a there's a lot of good writers out there, but are there enough for Netflix and Disney and all of the other services? Disney spent seventy four point eight billion again to acquire yeah. certain assets of Fox and Fox and yeah. National Geographic and television, you know, and that sort of thing. And so it had a considerable film library at the start, but it's the new stuff that brings people back to the table. That's and it. You need the long tail for when people are done watching the new stuff, but mm -hmm. the, the new stuff is the thing that brings people in. And there's nothing like that on Disney Plus. I mean, there's not, not, not enough of it, right? No. I mean, you, you have your Mandalorians and just today we're recording this. Hawkeye. The, Hawkeye yeah. just dropped. But you need more than one of those each quarter. And that's kind yeah. of where we are. A couple of other interesting questions. Um, one was, are you aware of this set of annual passholder benefits? Mm -hmm. And they listed them. Are you aware of exclusive annual passholder previews for new attractions? 
Are you aware of new experiences in Walt Disney World, including Kite Tales, Beacons of Magic, and so on? Are you aware of any annual passholder promotions at other theme parks? Legoland, Universal, Orlando, and SeaWorld were mentioned. And this is kind of interesting because at this point in the survey, Jim, I would actually change browser windows mm-hmm. to try and figure out which annual, annual passholder promotions were available at, at Universal. Yeah. A little surprised that they did that. Mm-hmm. Um, then there was a series of questions around, are you planning to buy an annual pass at other theme parks? Mm-hmm. And then here's an interesting one around, what passholder media platforms do you use to learn more about your annual pass benefits? And I've never seen this question before, Jim. So it's, where do you learn about passholder benefits? And they listed passholder buzz, the monthly newsletter, email, postal mail, the Walt Disney World annual passholder Facebook page, the passholder website on disneyworld.com or other. Why do they care where you're getting your, which platform you're getting your media information from? The annual passholder newsletter, which comes in the real mail. Remember the real mm-hmm. mail? This is all a time in the company's history where it's like, do we really need to spend that? And right. where are people getting their info? And it's a paper-driven publication, so there's recycle issue, there's the, there's the timeliness. So yeah, questions like, you always put a question in there like this because you're looking for a particular answer. And I would honestly be surprised with this bubbling up if the paper version of the passholder pass within the next year or so. Mm, interesting. Kind of wave goodbye, folks. There was a question. Uh, next question asked whether, as an annual passholder, you plan to use Genie Plus or individual Lightning Lane, and if not, why not? Mm-hmm. And then the terrifying questions, mm-hmm. which are of the options listed below, which is the most valuable Walt Disney World annual passholder benefit to you? Oof. Because then you know there it's just a ranking system where they get rid of the worst one, right? Yeah. Yeah. So uh, options there included food and bev discounts, Disney photo pass downloads, merch discounts, or included parking. And then for each of those benefits, they wanted to know how valuable you think they are. So how valuable do you think each of the following benefits are? VIP pass holder support, food and beverage discounts, resort hotel room discounts, and so on. This to me sounds like they're trying to figure out what the most important things are for pass holders and they're just going to drop everything else. In the same window of time where they've paused annual pass sales, this is a cash cow for the company that at this late date, they're like, well, do we really need to feed the cash cow? Or, or do we, <laughs> exactly. You know, do we, we need to use good quality grain? You know, couldn't we just feed this thing hay? <laughs> well, it's a good point because, I mean, one way to make more money on the annual pass program is to charge more for it, but another is to cut benefits. There we go. There's a um, uh, two final questions in this. One is, do you feel that Disney appreciates you as a pass holder? And uh, I am reminded of the line that I've heard over and over again over the last couple of months is, mm-hmm. look, this is just an abusive relationship. And the, the sooner <laughs> the, uh, the fans figure this out, the better. And then the second question was, uh, how would you describe the new annual pass types in comparison to the previous annual pass options? Much better, better, the same, worse, much worse, or not sure. So... That was super interesting. Yeah. Thank you for sending in that uh, survey, Valerie, though. It's yeah. a, lot of, a lot of screens. Oh, appreciate that. Thank you. Thank you. All right. On to listener questions. Mm-hmm. This one from Melissa and Kurt, who write it and say, my, uh, so this is Melissa writing in. It says, my husband and I, both rocket scientists, wanted to let you know that you have at least two more rocket scientist fans. Apparently, the Disney Dish is the Disney-related podcast for discerning rocket scientists to enjoy. Thank you. <laughs> Regarding being able to receive satellite radio in space, as long as you have an antenna pointed towards the satellite constellation, you'd be able to pick up the signal. Most of the satellite radio constellations are in geostationary orbit. 
about 35,000 kilometers in altitude. I believe 35,000 kilometers, Jim, in Imperial units is two weeks. <laughs> sure. The ISS is at an average of 250 kilometers, so mm -hmm. much less, mm -hmm. well below geostationary orbit. If your trajectory took you above the constellation of satellites, for example, on your way to the moon, you still might be able to receive some signal by training your antenna on the satellites as they're coming over the horizon and essentially pointed towards you as they point towards Earth. You know, Jim, I read that last paragraph because we're all about contingency planning here on the show. There we go. So if you ever find yourself on the way to the moon, which could happen, mm -hmm. that's good advice. I don't know if you've heard about Michael Strahan's travel plans for, for next month. He's doing the Blue Origin thing that Chatner just did. So Is he really? He is. They just announced it yesterday. So good for him. Oh, fantastic. If we know him, we could ask him to play satellite radio while he's on there. <laughs> There we go. Hey, God. You know, because you play our podcast, we're up there. You know, that's Wait, he records, he records AB, Good Morning, it's ABC, right? Yes, Good Morning America. When, so. The next time I'm in New York, I might hold up a sign in front of the Good Morning <laughs> Studios, like, hey, could you just play some satellite radio? That would be killer. All right. I might have to leave the show early, Jim, to go do that. Okay. All right. Here's an email from James who says, uh, and this one's for you, Jim. Mm -hmm. uh, I just finished watching the Disney Archives documentary on Disney Plus, and I'd sell my firstborn to be able to visit it one day. It seems Disney's leaving a lot of money on the table by not having a permanent museum of some kind for this stuff somewhere. Would they ever develop such a concept? So Jim, public availability of the archives. The saddest part of the story is they did. Really? If you read the very first set of announcements for what was then called the Disney MGM Studio Tour, among the components, was a Walt Disney Archives Museum. They had very serious conversations with Dave Smith about, you know, creating a satellite facility down there. And, uh, you know, for some reason, it got pushed from phase one of the, the park to phase two and then didn't make it back on the table. But the earliest iteration of Disney's Boardwalk, when it was supposed to be sort of the second Pleasure Island, but mostly for conventioneers. There was a restaurant that was going to be built as the original assortment of shows and, and that sort of thing. It was called Walt's Attic. And you climbed up into the top of the boardwalks at the Assembly of Weird Buildings. And there, in this faux attic space, you were going to be able to dine around the treasures of the Disney archive. You know, whether it was an Academy Award for Snow White or a giant matte painting for the Black Hole. You know, there were all sorts of treasures that were going to be up there. But then Pleasure Island ran into trouble, and that in turn had Disney pivot away from Boardwalk being the second nighttime entertainment district to just becoming a hotel. But oh. it's been in the mix a couple of times. And for whatever reason, it it's, you know, keeps falling off the table. But the upside is you at least have people like Don Hahn who understand what's in the building. And that's put together this ridiculously entertaining documentary. Hmm. I would love to, uh, to see even a traveling exhibit on the archives would be uh, super illuminating. We actually do have one of those trolling, uh, rolling around the country right now. Uh, trolling. <laughs> well, there we go. It shows up and leaves. Uh, we had it at the Bowers Museum in Santa Anta. It's right now across the street from Graceland in the, the Graceland <laughs> Exhibition Center. Oh, I'm blanking where it's headed next. But yeah, it's touring the country right now. So, Oh, fantastic. Mm -hmm. All right. Here's an email from Devin who says, uh, my wife just received an email with an opportunity to enter a sweepstakes for DVC. You have to watch a 30-minute video to receive 10 extra entries. We usually do this at breakfast 
and just let the video play and make fun of it. But this one had a fairly unusual theme. The first part of the video opens with a story about a family member who is struggling with cancer and how after dealing with the struggle, they realize that life is short. And the implication is, why wait to buy a DVC contract? You could die tomorrow. Oh, oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Jim. So no new DVC resorts are under construction. Mm-hmm. So Disney doesn't have anything shiny to sell to potential DVC members. Now that we've got uh, You Might Get Cancer Lady as an ad campaign, how much longer until we see buy at Saratoga Springs or this puppy gets it? Whoa! I mean, just, <laughs> I mean, you know, look, I have always... But it, but it illustrates the point, right? They don't have any new... Normally, the way you sell DVC is by selling the new resort. There mm-hmm. is no new resort because they stopped building them. I mean, I get that Disney leans heavily into emotion and nostalgia, but holy cow. I need to see this video. If anybody gets the video, send me the link. Yep. All right. Last, uh, last email from John. He says, uh, Len, do you know how the Edison at Disney Springs is now as compared to before the shutdown? So I did get a chance to stop by there during the summer. I thought it was fine. Some of the entertainment had been cut back. I thought the service was, um, there were staffing issues, I think, at a lot of uh, the secondary Disney Springs restaurant. In terms of ratings from unofficial guide and touring planes users, it's still below average. I'll give you the top eight, John, um, for Disney Springs. So the highest rated restaurant in Disney Springs right now is Haleo at 97% thumbs up. Wine Bar George, just slightly below that, rounds up to 97% as well. Polite Pig, 96%. Homecoming, 95 Splitsville, 94. And I haven't been to Splitsville in forever. I got to go. Mm-hmm. Boathouse, 93. Deluxe Burger, 90 and then CityWorks Eatery and Poorhouse, that's the brew pub, mm-hmm. at 89%. So those are all of the above average places right now at Disney Springs. I would pick any of them probably over the Edison. Wow. And and, and Haleo, really? Haleo is really good. Yeah. I mean, you got to commit. If you want to go there, you have to hike basically down the west, which I guess now is getting that much more foot traffic, what with Drawn to Life finally. you know. Yeah. And if you if you go in the, um, the orange parking garage, it's basically... Straight out the Orange Parking Garage, slightly to the to the left, right? Okay, good point. It's fine. Good point. Yeah. All right. Yeah, not bad. All right, folks, we're going to take a quick commercial break. When we come back, Jim tells us about one of the best parades in Walt Disney World history, the Jingle Jungle Jam. We'll be right back. All right, Jim. Mm-hmm. Animal Kingdom Entertainment. A lot of that's been in the news lately, has it not? It has. It has. Though, if we're talking about uh, entertainment at the Disney theme parks, uh, did you see where this at this past weekend's destination uh, D23, we got a logo for the Walt Disney World 100th anniversary celebration for the 100 years of wonder? Oh, it's not the 100 years of magic or the 100 years of wishes or the 100 years of dreams or the 100 years of fantasy? We're just going to go through all the ship, uh, all the ship names while we. Yeah, well, remember you can't go through the uh, hundred years of magic. We already used that. That was for the hundredth anniversary of Walt Disney's birth. They did that through October 2001 through December uh, th- uh, 31st, 2002. And the events of 9-11 kind of threw that off schedule, but things got up on track back in December 5th of that year, which was the actual 100th anniversary of Walt Disney birth, and then ended February 2003, a 15-month-long celebration. And the 100 Years of Magic, all four theme parks got parades. Over the Magic Kingdom, we got the Snow Globe-inspired Share a Dream Come True Parade. I forgot about that 
Those giant snow globes featured in the parade were made out of the exact same acrylic material that the windshield of fighter jets are made of. What was the top speed of the parade? <laughs> I don't know. It's like, you know, you release the doves at the end of the show at the castle and man, those things are moving at a clip. <laughs> That that might have been overkill, I'm just saying. <laughs> okay, now over at Hollywood Studios, we got the Disney Stars and Motor Cars, which in effect it was a motorcade with 15 customized classic cars that then paid tribute to the specific set of characters that you'd find at that theme park. You got Muppets, Star Wars, Handy Manny, and yep. the Stars and Motor Cars first drove up Hollywood Boulevard and then hung a left at that newly built 122-foot-tall Mickey Sorcerer hat. And then over at Epcot, well, they didn't get a new parade per se, they got a reimagining of the Tapestry of Nations, which had been a, a you know, key component of, of Walt Disney World's Millennium Celebration and, and had circled around World Showcase hundreds of times since October of 99 and finishing up of uh, September 9th, 2001. So for the 100 Years of Magic, Tapestry of Nations was relaunched as Tapestry of Dreams, which was... Yep. Now we're supposed to celebrate children, dreams, and the legacy. Dreamers of, of all ages, Jim. <laughs> I did not get this. Don't get me wrong. Oh. I enjoyed watching the cast members manipulate those giant Michael Curry-made puppets. He was the guy who did the, the puppets and costumes for The Lion King on Broadway, which opened just a year or so previous to this. But when it came to the Tapestry of Dreams, it's like I was reading the press release at the time. It's supposed to be a visible dream where ideas and emotions and images are supposed to be evoked through the clever use of music and puppets and I got I got none of that out of seemed to hear. I mean I enjoyed it, but it's like wow, okay. You know the funny thing is I listen to Tapestry of Nations parade soundtrack mm. at least once a week. Do you really? I'm getting ready in the morning. And Tapestry of Dreams, which is very similar, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. I can't stand, and it's because there are children talking yeah. in it. And and I've I think I've said this before when um Epcot Forever mm -hmm. debuted at Epcot is that I never need children explaining what Epcot <laughs> means to me. Like it should never happen. I've never wanted to say shut up kid more. Than Quiet when, kid, when you I bother me. You know, all right. Exactly. <laughs> no, like maybe WC Fields had something. There we go. There we yeah. go. All right. So Tapestry of Nations, fantastic. Tapestry of Dreams. Eh. Okay. All right. What else? Okay. So this brings us to Mickey's Jam and Jungle Parade, which was the very first parade to run on a daily basis through Disney's Animal Kingdom Park, which had opened three and a half years earlier on in April of 1998. Oh, it's still a brand new park. They're still, they're still uh, trying to get the, uh, uh, the plastic off the seats. This Nata Zoo. Remember that ad campaign? Nata Zoo, the ad campaign. Yeah, that was all over Florida television back around uh, the opening. Yeah. It's a Disney's Animal King is many things, but that's one thing it is not. It's a zoo. That was launched in April of, of 2001, just ahead of the official kickoff of the 100 years of, of celebration. But anyway, this Nata Zoo was really not much of a theme park at that time anyway. And, and, and in that... I mean, when Joe Rohde and the Imagineers created this 500-acre complex, which is home to 1,700 animals from 300 different species, they wanted guests to be completely surrounded by nature. So in order sure. to pull this effect off, the landscaping at, at Department of Walt Disney World kind of goes a little over the top. Oh, it looks so good, though. It is, it is, but just in the... Nothing, nothing succeeds like excess, Jim. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> in the Africa section alone, there are 70,000 trees and 770,000 shrubs. And all this greenery is planted along extremely narrow paths and streets that wind through this theme park with the end result being, well, you don't feel like you're in Adventureland over the Magic Kingdom. You feel like you're in the real Africa, the real Asia. 
after three and a half years of operating Disney's Animal Kingdom, that theme park's managers begin to notice some very disturbing patterns, as in... (laughs) (laughs) No one's here at five (laughs) o'clock? Well, no, that's it exactly. Guests would arrive at Animal Kingdom right at opening, because they had been told, sometimes at the front desk, hey, if you're heading over the Animal Kingdom, you want to be there in the early morning. That's when the animals are the most active. Do you know we actually actually counted this on on Kilimanjaro safaris one time? Did you really? We rode, I don't close to a hundred times mm-hmm. over the course of a couple of years mm-hmm. and counted not only the number of large animals you saw at different times of the day, but even the small animals like the birds. Okay. And we, we could not find a pattern oh. that said, you know, you see more, uh, more animals in the early morning. And I think you know, part of the reason is, is Disney corrected for that mm-hmm. by adding like air conditioned spots mm-hmm. for the animals to go to during the hottest part of the day. So for as far as the animals were concerned, it was, you know, basically 72 degrees mm-hmm. year round. Let's not forget about, you know, the coffee wagon that's just backstage as well. <laughs> exactly. All right, exactly. come on, guys. Get, get a cappuccino. Get out there. Go, go, go. Sure. But anyway, by 2 o'clock in the afternoon, all of these people were streaming out of Animal Kingdom because they, they'd already it's seen and experienced all of that theme parks, ride shows, and attractions, which also, that's a capacity thing. Plus, this is a, this is pre-Expedition Everest. That's it, exactly. Ah, okay. All right, go ahead. And uh, more to the point, these people had no reason to linger in Animal Kingdom, which is why they're now boarding buses for Magic Kingdom, Epcot, and Disney MGM. The main reasons that Disney's other three theme parks in Florida got guests to linger through the late afternoon into the evening was they could do nightly fireworks displays, but that just was not on the table at Animal Kingdom because pyro is sure to frighten the animals. So that left only a daily parade, which was problematic mm-hmm. because Joe Rody and company had deliberately designed Animal Kingdom to have all these narrow roads and pathways, which right. and then encourage all these tall trees, you know, to to grow and lean out into the roadway and grow branches and that sort of thing. And, and let's not forget the uh, the walkways themselves are not smooth concrete. Oh no, no, no. I mean they made a very big deal about pressing leaves and palm yep. fronds in to give them texture and it's not just not parade friendly it's not ecv or wheelchair friendly but that's that's another issue entirely so this all adds up to this is a park that's not really easy to get a parade up and running in but the entertainment team starting in 2000 starts walking through the park and it's measures every walkway every street they get the width of every road and walkway and eventually come up with a possible parade route, which would start near Tusker House. There's a gate that they could bring the parade floats in uh, through Harambee Marketplace, through backstage. Really? That's where it keeps through Harambee? Okay. All okay. right. All right. So the parade float then hang a right and cross the bridge between Harambee Village and Discovery Island. The parade would then roll between the Tree of Life and that shopping village in the center of the park before then continuing to Asia. And then uh, once the parade reaches Asia, it would hang yet another left and then continue around Discovery Island, returning to Africa, where it would then exit the theme park the exact way it came in through that gate over by Tusker House. Amazing. Downside was that in order to travel this extremely narrow parade route, you need extremely narrow vehicles to make it through the various pinch points. And as you mentioned, because it's not flat and it's textured, you're going to need all-terrain vehicles that can deal with this often bumpy and heavily textured pavement. Which, again, makes this fourth gate seem less like a theme park and more like a a real place. So 
What show director Reed Jones discovers is the one vehicle that really will really fit the bill here is a Jeep. So he goes okay. he goes online and he procures for Walt Disney World Entertainment one Land Rover, one Land Cruiser, and three regular Jeeps, which which takes a little doing. When one of the vehicles Reed needs for the show has to be driven down to Orlando all the way from Ohio. And then, of course, once the vehicles get on site, well, the gas and diesel motors all have to be ripped out and replaced by 10 horsepower electric motors. Really? That's all it takes, 10 horsepower electric motors to uh, to run a parade? But you've got to remember to plug them in, <laughs> you know. Oh, right. Oh, and it goes three miles an hour. Okay, fair enough. There you fair go. Enough. Okay. So, and then to pad out this procession, Disney then turns to Michael Curry, who had done the such nice work for the Broadway version of Lion King, likewise those big walk-around puppets. In Tapestry of Nation, Tapestry of Dreams. And so Curry's team up in Portland, Oregon, create eight enormous abstract animal puppets. They include a giraffe, a wildebeest, a crane, a chameleon, a frog, and a big monkey. And the beauty of these, these parade elements is when necessary... The cast members who were working these enormous abstract animal puppets could turn them sideways or temporarily dip them forward toward the ground to avoid trees and branches that stuck out into the parade route. And then you fold in four drum sculptures, a three rickshaw taxis, 10 uh, party animal stilt walkers, and 16 Disney characters, and... and you got yourself a parade, admittedly a very modest parade by the usual Disney theme park standards, but it's still a parade. And then to absolutely make sure that guests will stay to watch what eventually will be known as Mickey's Jam and Jungle Parade, Disney's entertainment uh, team uses the old tried and true trick of recruiting guests to come ride on various floats featured in the procession. And this is a genius move for two reasons. One is, is it forces these people's relatives to hang in Disney's Animal Kingdom so they can then watch their family member roll by in a rickshaw. Also, by recruiting 25 guests to appear daily in Mickey's Jam and Jungle Parade. Now, you got to understand, that, Len, this is a parade that only has 60 cast members total working the thing. So wow. you effectively increase the size of the parade by a third. By a third, yeah. You know, by bringing in, you know, recruiting these guests. Um, oh, that's smart, though. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you, you get these extra bodies that, that bulk up the, the parade. <laughs> I was going to say, you, you, you get very tall, very large, very <laughs> wide people to... Yes. Mr. Chamberlain, would you like to head leave this parade? Yes. There we go. All right. So anyway, as I mentioned at the start of today's show, you know, uh, Mickey's Jamming Jungle Parade begin, begins rolling through Animal Kingdom fall of 2001 and did exactly what it's supposed to. It gave people a compelling reason to linger inside of Walt Disney World's fourth gate well into the afternoon, which translated into stronger merchandise sales. Uh, likewise, more meals being served at Animal Kingdom's quick service. What I loved about Mickey's Jamming Jungle Parade is how the production team had to find a workaround for every problem that got thrown at it. I mean, for example, the theme song that Reed Jones and his music director, Dan Stamper, wrote for this daily procession through the park. And remember, Len, and bark and growl and, bark, and screech and, and roar. Growl, there we go. And screech and roar. <laughs> there we go. It was like the Animal Kingdom's take on Jazzercise. <laughs> You know, it was just... Here's your leotard, Mr. Testa. <laughs> Come on. Yeah. You know, like... The other thing I loved about this parade was how insanely close mm -hmm. oh. to the parade floats you could sit. Because, again, there was no 
there's no space. No, no. In the animal kingdom for it. So they, the remember the cast members had to come out with masking tape to mask out like where the danger zone was. <laughs> like, oh. man, if you put your foot like three inches beyond this little piece of masking tape right there, no, there's a chance you're not coming back home with it, right? With this parade, if you go beyond the masking tape, your foot will be crushed. Exactly. <laughs> Very slowly. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> but crushing them. It's going to hurt the entire time it's happening. Let me tell you right now. <laughs> but anyway, okay. So again, the, the bark and roll and growl and screech the theme song. This is at a point where Animal Kingdom doesn't have a park-wide sound system in place yet. I didn't know that. So they built the entire park without a single unified sound system. So each of the Jeeps featured in Mickey's Jam and Jungle Parade had to be outfitted with their own sound system, which would then blast the soundtrack as they rolled along the parade. So, to, so never mind that your feet could get you know, rolled over. You could end up deaf attending this parade. <laughs> anyway, after three years, a seasonal variation of Mickey's Jam and Jungle Parade, Mickey's Jingle Jungle Parade, begins rolling through Animal Kingdom in November of 2004. And this holiday transformation was clearly done on a budget, but what was really surprising about this was how genuinely effective the seasonal retheming was. The, oh, yeah. Yeah, the cast members and guests who took part in the parade were all given red or green vests to wear, and with a Santa hat here, a candy can there, a little faux snow applied to, to various parade floats, a little garland, some jingle bells. It was surprisingly fun holiday offering. But what I'll honestly help here again is, you know, talking about the, the soundtrack, what they did, uh, Jones and Stamper, is they, they would also fold in holiday classics like Deck the Halls, Jingle Bells, and Santa Claus is coming to town. And, and another aspect of Jing, uh, Mickey's Jingle Jungle Parade that people really remember fondly was as the unit featuring Minnie Mouse would roll by, the, the normal version of the parade, the gag was that... Minnie had a difficult time packing, so she had, you know, literally brought her bathtub from home because she didn't know what to expect when she was out in the jungle. But for the holiday parade, what they did is they created this element that made it look like the, you know, the bathtub had been filled with hot chocolate. In fact, you could see the giant marshmallows floating in it. And f just for the seasonal version of the show, they put a smellizer on that particular Ooh. parade float. So as you roll by, you could smell the hot cocoa. So why isn't some sort of at least updated variations parade continuing to roll through Disney's Animal Kingdom? And in a word, Len, it was progress. Progress. Well, the one-two punch of vertical construction getting underway on Pandora, the world of Avatar, in spring of 2014, as well as the decision to move and then expand the theater in Harambe Village that housed Festival of the Lion King, which, which opened in May uh, late May of that same year, uh, it was just something that Mickey's Jam and Jungle Parade and Mickey's Jingle Jungle Parade just could never come back from. Because face it, the parade no longer, with these changes, had an easy way to enter and exit the theme park. Uh, likewise, they lost their backstage area where the Jeeps, the rickshaws, and the oversized animal uh, puppets mm. would get parked. So, this is just something that Disney's entertainment department couldn't overcome. And so we got our last Jingle Jungle Parade presented in January, of, uh, early January of 2014. And then the final Mickey's Jammin' Jungle Parade uh, was presented on May 31st of that same year. And yeah. 
Now, this meant that Animal Kingdom once again had to come up with additional artificial reasons to keep guests in that theme park in the late afternoon, which, as you pointed out, was easier to do once Expedition Everest came online. Right, that helped, yeah. But we've seen a variety of these initiatives over the past seven years. We had Rivers of Light. Uh, which was supposed to, yeah, well, I, I didn't say they were successful. Hold on. Do we, should we, should we um, be playing uh, the way we were in the background <laughs> while we're doing this? Aaron, go ahead. <laughs> we had Rivers of Light, which was supposed to open in April of 2016, but gets pushed back to February the following year. We have Sunset Excursions uh, at Kilimanjaro Safari beginning in April of 2016. Tree yep. of Life Projections, uh, The Awakening. All right, that's still around. All yeah. right. And, of course, Pandora opens uh, May of 2017. We get our retooled version of Rivers of Light with characters in, in May of 2019. That closes with the pandemic in March of 2020. And... Mm. Never comes and back. Never came back. Yeah. Yeah, but and now we have kite tails, which, which by the way, kite tails. By yeah. the way, did you just see the announcement that for the month of December, kite tails is going to have its own dedicated entrance and seating area for Walt Disney World annual pass holders? It did. I, I love and I and I love the uh, the threat that comes with that. Right. Isn't this the equivalent of, you know, the team that ran the airfield in Lakehurst, New Jersey? It's like, here, sit right down there. You're going to get a really good view as the Hindenburg comes in. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> could possibly go wrong. I don't want to have that sort of encounter with Baloo. I don't want him to either smash down in the stands next to me or on me. I really, if I got to choose, I would prefer the Baloo that I encountered with Mickey's Jam and Jungle, you know, where he, he, he led off the parade with Louie and, you know, marched <laughs> down the street. So I wonder what it's like to get hit by one of those kites. It's always that question, Len, which would you rather move, the, you know, a ton of bowling balls or a ton of feathers? It's still a ton. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I assume several hundred pounds of fabric that, yes, is filled with air, but when it's coming down with you on top of you, that's still a hundred pounds of fabric. I might need to try this. Oh, well, okay. All right, All right folks, we're going to fund the, start the GoFundMe <laughs> for, for Mr. Chester in his recovery. Do you get helmets? To sit in there? I would kind of go the other way. Do you have a mattress you can hold up at the last minute? A mattress, like, he's yeah. in the incoming! No, you know what you need? Because it's a, it's their inflated balloons. You need one of those World War One German helmets with the pointy <laughs> things at the top. <laughs> that would make for a very short production <laughs> performance <laughs> schedule. I'm sorry. All of the, the kites have been perforated for today. Come back tomorrow. Maybe we can patch them. All right, so maybe a little more thinking is needed. Maybe a little more, a little more. Fair enough. But still, uh, great story, Jim. Well, glad to share. All right, folks, that's going to do it for the Disney Dish show today. Please head on over to DisneyDish.BandCamp.com, where you'll find exclusive shows never before heard on iTunes, including live shows Jim and I have just recorded in all four Walt Disney World theme parks. And Jim, weren't you saying that the second of our Magic Kingdom series has come out over the weekend. Yes, it has. Yes, we, we, yeah, we are going to feature brand new Bandcamp exclusive show all the way through New Year's, folks. So be sure and check those out. That's fantastic. And on next week's show, we're going to look back at the opening of New Fantasyland in 2012, along with other Walt Disney World attractions that debuted around then. You can find more of Jim at jimhillmedia.com and more of me, Len, at touringplans.com. We're produced fabulously by Aaron Adams, who will be playing his favorite post-club, future knock, and Kawaii Bounce songs when he opens for Ghost Rider at the Wobbleland 2022 Music Festival on Saturday, January 15th, 2022, 
at the Bill Graham Civic Auditorium in beautiful downtown San Francisco, California. While Aaron's doing that, please go into iTunes and rate our show and tell us what you'd like to hear next. Virginia, this is Len. We will see you on the next show.